People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio. This is Rodney Trudgeon introducing you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, recently, the UCT Summer School had a lecture which particularly interested me. It was called A Composer's Midlife Crisis, Wagner Before and After Schopenhauer. And the lecture attempted to reconcile two outwardly contradictory views of the 19th century composer, Richard Wagner. For example, where Thomas Mann argued for a basic unity underlying his perfectly consistent and fully rounded life's work, there is, on the other hand, a widespread conviction that Wagner was never the same after encountering the pessimistic philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer while midway through his greatest work, The Ring. And this seeming paradox can nonetheless be resolved by seeing the composer shift in outlook as enabling the maturation and enrichment of his earlier aims. And having read that, I was completely gripped. And although I couldn't make it to the lectures, I thought the next best thing is to invite the lecturer into the studio and I'm very glad he's agreed. His name is Dr. Jamie McGregor, who is a lecturer in literary studies in English at Grahamstown's University. Jamie, welcome. Thanks, Rodney. It's a tough subject, but we're going to make it fun, <laughs> I think. But what I'd like to know, you're a lecturer in literary studies in English. Yes. So how does Wagner and philosophy come into it? Um, it's it's not an easy fit, as, as you can imagine. Uh, my, my first sort of uh, official foray in my um, graduate research, for example, was via Wagner's literary influence. Um, so it's it's quite a substantial field in its own right. A great number of modernist writers, um, T.S. Eliot in the Wasteland, um, James Joyce, uh, Virginia Woolf, the, the great uh, modernist writers, um, uh, all clearly influenced by, by Wagner in many ways. Uh, Eliot in the Wasteland, for example, um, alludes to passages in, in both the, the Ring and in Tristan. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't mm. it? Because I think people do actually underestimate just how much Wagner wrote. Mm. We know he was constantly writing. I think he even edited a newspaper at one stage and writing pamphlets. Mm. But there's a substantial amount of literature, isn't there, written by Wagner? Oh, yes, yes. He was endlessly prolific. Um, and what's it like? Mm. Is it, I haven't read, I haven't even read his autobiography. Mm. Is it penetrable? It varies. I mean, well, well first of all, I, I must be upfront about my um, limitations that, that come with the background in, in, in literary studies. I'm, I'm not a musician or musicologist, as I said, and I also don't read German, so I only know uh, Wagner in translation. Right. Um, right. But uh, given that, I, his, his autobiography is uh, pretty entertaining. Uh, for, okay, as uh, Nietzsche word. and others have, have said, you know, it, it has to be taken with a, a large grain of salt. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it, it's, it's certainly hugely subjective and often very offensive to all sorts of people. Um, but, but it's certainly an entertaining read. But his prose theory, opera and drama and so on, is, is notoriously um, impenetrable and, and, and turgid. <laughs> yes. and I've, I've only, even in translation, only bothered with, with passages from it. Um, it's, it's much better to read other people on Wagner's 
theory than and there's Wagner a lot himself. of that as well yes, isn't there yes. there's some uh, someone once said there's a huge amount of literature on mm-hmm. Wagner mm-hmm. even more than religious characters that's right in some cases yeah. but so not being a musician and not mm. being uh, so it was reading Wagner's writings that drew you to his operas was it it was was the other way round which uh, I think is is perhaps um, more more natural of course mm-hmm. what what uh, makes um, Wagner great, of course, is is the music, Absolutely. and uh, it was that. through a love of music that uh, uh, I was I was drawn to explore his world, which then, of course, as you discover, is a great literary world as mm-hmm. well. And, I mean, it is extraordinary. Mm. Also, we use the word I think extraordinary a lot with Wagner mm. that he wrote all his own librettos. Mm. We think of Boito with Verdi and mm-hmm. Da Ponte mm-hmm. with Mozart, mm-hmm. but. There was Wagner tackling things like um, the Tristan poem, for example, mm-hmm. or Nordic mythology, and writing his own prose. Yes, yes, remarkable. And in fact, this is one of the things you pick up in the the earlier parts of of the biography. Um, is he he claims, and and it, it seems to be sincere and genuine that uh, he he set out in his his teens uh, to be a literary writer first and foremost and then decided to take up music because uh, he wanted to start uh, (laughs) setting his dramas to music rather than the other way around so it's as if he became a composer backwards almost and famously (laughs) he wanted to change the world didn't he yes the other thing Mm. that i think a lot of people don't realize is that wagner is not a right-wing fanatic. He was a mm. left-wing mm. revolutionary yes. uh, and quite a fierce mm-hmm. one, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He participated in the, uh, the Dresden, 1848 yeah. um, and 49 uprising in Dresden. Yeah. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. had to flee to Zurich, as we know. So That's right. This mad idea that he had that art should be, well, what maybe it wasn't that mad, mm. Um, mm. treated quite differently and be thrown onto its head and start again gave him the sort of passion of his early works and then yes. as we we're going to talk about mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. came this midlife crisis when he came across Schopenhauer mm-hmm. so for our first before we get involved in Schopenhauer mm-hmm. for our first musical excerpt now you've chosen part of the overture to the Flying Dutchman and this is mm-hmm. Wagner in his young youthful very much mm-hmm. under the influence of people like Hegel I think and those chaps Feuerbach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he had certainly been dabbling in, in reading philosophy um, that, that early i not sure that he'd even got to Feuerbach yet. Um, there are funny stories about him trying to read Hegel and not making head or tail of it. Um, uh, but uh, the the interesting thing about the Flying Dutchman, of course, is that as, as pretty much all commentators agree, this this is the the first sign we have of the um, authentic um, Wagner as a musical personality. Mm-hmm. It's it's the first really distinctive. Um, work and with his incredible command of the orchestra the Mm -hmm. sequence we're going to play from the overture is just after the redemption theme where you hear Mm. the crashing waves and the howling Mm. gale Mm. so here a short excerpt from the overture to the flying dutchman by wagner
Well, we leave that dramatic music there. That's part of the overture to The Flying Dutchman by a very young Wagner, as we said, Wagner's first true Wagnerian opera. And uh, that was played by the Berlin Philharmonic and Herbert von Karajan and uh, depicting there the tumultuous seas and also Wagner's skill with the orchestra, which he acquired quite early, quite clearly, didn't he? And my guest is Dr. Jamie McGregor, who's a lecturer in literary studies in English and recently delivered a lecture at UCT Summer School called A Composer's Midlife Crisis, Wagner Before and After Schopenhauer. What I find interesting, I read some in Brian mm. McGee's rather magnificent book, mm. uh, Wagner mm. Philosophy, which you know, don't you? Yes, Dr. yes, it's a great influence on me. Um, I I read it in Germany just before I went to see Tristan and Isolde, mm. so it equipped me, shall we say. Mm. But um, he says there how interesting it is with Schopenhauer. There were six operas before and six operas afterwards. It really came right in the middle mm. of, I think it was six, of Wagner's life. Yes. Um, so when he was this young man and wandering around reading all these philosophers' works and wanting to change the universe – the theory is that most of his work at that time was very much based on his ideas. So when this change came about, it was a big life-changing moment, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes, it really was. Um, Would you be able to tell me what it is about Schopenhauer that attracted Wagner? Or, I mean, this is an impossible question, Jamie. Mm, I can mm. see you smiling already. The man in the street, what, what, must he th what is Schopenhauer all about? It's, he's regarded as a pessimistic philosopher. Mm -hmm. I, I think the... The key to this is, is to emphasize the, the pessimism and emphasize how it fitted in with, with Wagner's uh, personality even before um, he encountered um, Schopenhauer's work, which um, happened at the age of 41. Um, so, yes, very much in the, the middle of his, his career. And I, I do have uh, obviously greatly uh, reduced and to some extent dumbed down version of what <laughs> McGee writes about at much greater length and, and very eloquently. And anyone who really wants to understand the subject in depth should, should turn to McGee's work. Um, but the short version is, is this, that, that Wagner from, from early in life, and one already hears this very clearly in The Flying Dutchman, um, uh, was a great pessimist himself. Um, he clearly felt that the, the world was a dreadful place in, in many ways and that his own experience of, of life was one of, of endless frustration um, and he wanted to do something about it and, and, and so this drive to change the world that, that you've already mentioned is, is a drive in the operas that one, one can feel this, this, this tension in them and of course by the time he gets to the ring this is, is his big project um, we, we have uh, political allegory uh, in the ring um, uh, much of the, the original um, work um, not for the music which came later but for the libretto, the ideas in it uh, dates from the same period as his involvement in the Dresden Uprising which we talked about um, so uh, the, the ring clearly has this political program um, how, how do we change the world how do we move from a, a law governed to a love governed um, universe, his, his greatest philosophical influence at this point is, is Feuerbach and the, the, the new doctrine of, of love and the kind of socialist utopia uh, this, this and an is element his, of sexual mm. freedom oh, <laughs> a great forget. element <laughs> yes. of sexual freedom which of course the music gives yes. wonderful expression to as yeah, well um, 
and and then in the middle of of composing the ring so he's he's written the whole libretto for all four parts at this stage and he's composed uh, das Rheingold throughout and the first act of Die Valkyra and at this point uh, he he reads Schopenhauer for the first time and uh, Schopenhauer does three things essentially to Wagner he confirms yes the world is absolutely a dreadful place in Schopenhauer's estimation it's the worst of all possible worlds um, his his great concept of course is the will everything is fundamentally will and Wagner must have recognized this in himself a point that McGee makes is that uh, Wagner himself was will incarnate <laughs> yes indeed, uh, indeed one of the reasons why he experienced so much frustration mm -hmm. that he couldn't fulfill his ambitions quickly enough and so um, Schopenhauer convinces him he's been right about that all along um, but Schopenhauer is a greater pessimist than Wagner in, in his, his view there, there is no cure certainly not a political one um, if there's, if there's uh, any redemption available um, it's uh, of a metaphysical nature but it's also it's not um, traditionally religious in, in, a, in a western sense at least uh, Schopenhauer himself later discovered when he brought out the, the second edition of uh, the world as will and representation that his philosophy had a great deal in common with eastern religions Buddhism uh, for example yes especially yes. Buddhism mm. the idea of, of the um, the the world is a kind of veil of illusions mm -hmm. and something that needs to be ignored and repudiated and turned away from and, and this I think was a real shock to Wagner because uh, the the sort of quasi-political solution that the ring is attempting to set up now becomes impossible in, in a Schopenhauerian sense um, but something else becomes possible instead which is this sort of retreat within and a denial and renunciation and so on yes and that as you say happened in the middle of the ring and it must have been uh, from what I've read and certainly McGee pointed out mm. that it created a huge crisis for him because he was mm. so convinced about what he was doing when he set out on the ring. Now he's got to change his whole philosophical outlook. Mm. Um, and he did fairly successfully, didn't he? And I know in the middle of the ring there was a 25-year break. I think it mm. was at the end of Act 2 of Siegfried. Mm. And when the music comes back, I've always thought for Act 3 of Siegfried, mm. 25 years later... It's, it's a little having, less. Yes. Was I, it think, less? I think it's 12 years. Oh, 12 yes, years. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but it's a remarkably long period mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you immediately hear a difference in the the music is mm. agitated and it's a dramatic change from what's gone before it is and yet he's he's using the the same material the mm. same mass of of, of light motifs that's right know, the, the famous that, light motifs uh, run through the the early or operas continue but uh, of course within that gap significantly he's composed both Tristan and Isolde and the Meistersinger and oh. and from the experience of composing those two uh, heavily uh, Schopenhauer influenced and very different works he then comes back to the ring with um, uh, a much greater musical as well as philosophical experience yes. and, and that explains the shift and then this whole redemption through the love of a woman which we mm. come to mm -hmm. but um, our next piece of music you've chosen something I think quite unexpected the forest murmurs sequence from act mm -hmm. two of Siegfried as a kind of illustration of the Schopenhauerian change. Why, tell me why you've chosen this and what's its significance? Well, this is uh, 
pretty much the point where Wagner breaks off the ring before the the long gap mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's it's a period another period of crisis in his life when he's he's now read Schopenhauer a few times uh, he's he's absorbing um, the philosophy he's becoming a convert and and he's he's torn between the the kind of twin pressures of, of wanting to continue the ring and then wanting to turn aside to this new project uh, Tristan and um, so the second act of, of Siegfried is is the last um, of the parts of, of the ring that, that he writes before coming back to the, the third act 12 years later mm -hmm. and um, uh, McGee believes and, and I agree with him that, that one can start to hear um, some of Schopenhauer's influence in the music at this point. Now, um, how to explain this? The point McGee makes very well is that um, Wagner decided that he didn't need to change the text of the ring at all to accommodate his, his new uh, agreement with, with Schopenhauer. But because he still had more of the music to compose, he could change the relationship of text to music. Ah, mm. okay, okay. So what happens if one reads the libretto of, of Siegfried, at, at this point it's very simple. He is resting in the forest, he's, he's been led there by the, the dwarf uh, Mima who wants him to, to kill the dragon Fafner so that he can um, gain the, the ring of power for himself. And um, and so Siegfried is the unwitting dupe of, of Mima's plot yes, yes, at this yeah. point. And there he is uh, alone outside the dragon's cave. He's the young, fearless hero. He's, he seems not so much uh, unperturbed by the presence of, of the dragon as forgetful of it mm, at this mm. stage. He's resting in the forest. And uh, the, the action on paper is, is very simple. It's just stage directions uh, that the light increases it's dawn filtering through the forest but uh, what what the music does is is more extraordinary it, it doesn't simply depict this um, as a, a wonderful piece of, of romantic nature painting though it is that as well um, it gives us this sense of the hero in solitary communion with with nature and, and, and Schopenhauer is, is very eloquent about this, how in moments of stillness, moments of, of contemplation, one ceases to be um, simply an individual that, that achieves this kind of almost Buddhistic oneness with the cosmos. And somehow, I don't know how, one senses this in the music, in this, this deep, uh, relaxation that, that emanates through it and this is a I think a powerful philosophical feeling rather than an idea okay thank you that's very interesting mm. so let's listen now to an excerpt from the scene of Siegfried lying there enjoying nature the forest murmurs
Well, there you are, a moment of pastoral relaxation in the second act of Siegfried, the third of the Ring Operas by Wagner, the sequence known as Forest Murmurs with the Vienna Philharmonic there, conducted by Sir George Schulte from that famous set of The Ring. And my guest is Dr. Jamie McGregor, lecturer in literary studies in English, But Dr. Jamie has recently delivered a lecture at the UCT Summer School, A Composer's Midlife Crisis, Wagner, before and after Schopenhauer. And when I saw that, I couldn't resist inviting you into the studio, uh, Jamie. So we've now discovered that Schopenhauer's got his grip, and Mm. they never met, did they? Wagner and Schopenhauer never met, which is strange. Uh, He had a very narrow opportunity to meet him, and um, sort of balked at the last hurdle. He was, of course, still in exile. Um, and uh, Schopenhauer, of course, was a generation older. Mm. And uh, Wagner's um, uh, exile only came to an end a, a few months um, before Schopenhauer died. Of course, he didn't know he was going to die so soon. Mm. But uh, he visited uh, Germany briefly and, and Frankfurt, where um, where Schopenhauer was staying. And uh, McGee believes that uh, Schopenhauer was perhaps the only person in in Wagner's life that that he felt sufficiently in awe of uh, not to be equal to the encounter. And (laughs) and that's the reason that he didn't take the opportunity to visit him. Quite a thing to say, Mm. isn't it? Because Wagner used to think he was just the greatest Mm. and everyone Mm. was beneath him, whether they were philosophers or musicians, (laughs) singers, conductors. And he, uh, Schopenhauer, when... Cosima, I think, in her diaries often mm. referred to how much Schopenhauer was read in the house by both on of them. On a daily basis. On a daily mm. basis, mm. yeah. And that Wagner was constantly reading these over and over again. It must have had, as we've said, a huge impact on him. And it went on, didn't it, when he stopped the ring at the end of Act Two of Siegfried mm. to write Tristan, which is, I think some people even call it the Schopenhauer opera. Yes, he had recently met and I think fallen in love with Matilda Wesendonk, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. although he was living with her and her husband. And I've often wondered, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, was Tristan a result of his passion for mm-hmm. women and redemption by women, or was it Schopenhauer's, was it just the perfect moment for his Schopenhauer ideas to come out with this love Mm-hmm. of Matilda. It's a congealed question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can make mm-hmm. anything of that. Uh, yes, no, that's that's a really good question, Rodney. The uh, role of erotic lo- love in, in Wagner's life, of course, is hugely significant and not to be discounted. But um, I, I think it, it is uh, ultimately philosophy that, that takes precedence here. And uh, again, one has to refer to McGee's work because it is simply so authoritative. And, and almost um, the, the great original discovery that, that he makes in, in his work is knowing uh, Schopenhauer as, as well as he does he is able to decode uh, a letter that Wagner wrote to Liszt about his first conception for, for Tristan um, which has, has been quite uh, mysterious uh, until um, McGee comes along because he, he describes the, the first idea for the opera as, as being a uh, simple but full-blooded musical conception. Uh, McGee asked the question, what on earth did he mean by this? And, and his, his answer is a very convincing one, that Schopenhauer talks a great deal about um, music in, in his work, um, far more than is, is common for philosophers to do. And uh, 
to cut a long story short, he describes music as a unique art because it is non-representative, but it is rather the voice of the metaphysical will itself. It describes our inner emotional life, which is the will. Mm-hmm. Which words can't really. Mm, this is right. And then very, very technically, he, he, he gives examples of types of music and, and, and talks about um, uh, harmonic suspension and how this creates tension in the listener. And McGee believes that this gives Wagner the idea for a musical work in which um, harmonic suspension will be sustained to the most unbearable point mm, for a full-length opera and only resolved at the end. And that is, in fact, uh, the, the very technical explanation for, yeah. for this work. But Tristan is so famous for those suspensions and Mm. unresolved uh, chords and the famous Tristan chord, which opens the opera, which is not really resolved at all. Some people say not even at the end. But nonetheless, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about sitting through Tristan for five hours is this ceaseless kind of yearning and nothing ever being resolved. And it's tremendously powerful as a result. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that Schopenhauer knew that much about music? Yes, he's an extremely knowledgeable man on um, a wide variety of of topics, music Mm. included. And he even includes uh, very simple, uh, but nonetheless uh, includes musical examples uh, in uh, The World as Will. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. Do you think, um, I don't know the answer to this question, do you think Schopenhauer knew about Wagner and Wagner's fascination with him? Um, Well, it's uh, a difficult uh, question. He, he knew very little of Wagner because, of course, the, the influence goes, goes very much one way. Mm. Um, um, Schopenhauer is very much at the end of his, his life and career by the time Wagner discovers him. He did know of him. Um, he had uh, seen some of the, the early operas, Flying Dutchman, for example, which unconsciously foreshadows a kind of Schopenhauerian pessimism. He, he didn't seem to have much uh, opinion of him as a composer, but uh, he admired his his uh, librettos, I think. And and Wagner sent him a copy of of the Ring libretto, which which Schopenhauer read and annotated, but never replied to. He seems Strange. to have been offended that uh, Wagner sent it uh, with a kind of uh, a, a note in the margin, I think, but no covering letter. <laughs> yes, yes, I read that. So McGee's uh, yes. talks that story. Mm. Do you know what other philosophers thought of Schopenhauer or what he thought of them? I mean, his change was so dramatic, it must also have affected mm. the likes of Hegel and Feuerbach, uh, mm. or possibly they had died before then. Uh, or yes, Nietzsche, for yes, example. Yes. Schopenhauer is a huge influence on, on Nietzsche mm-hmm. and, and later on on Wittgenstein. He himself is very much a, a maverick, and, and this is many people think partly the explanation why he's so attractive to non-philosophers and creative artists is very much swimming against the current and and Mm -hmm. he himself um, despises uh, most of his immediate forerunners uh, particularly Hegel and writes very rude and very funny things uh, about what charlatans he thinks they all are (laughs) yes you gave a lovely quote (laughs) before we came into the studio was it Schopenhauer talking about Hegel yes he called him a lasting monument to German stupidity (laughs) (laughs) one has to laugh I'm sure that would have amused Wagner at the end but not at the beginning Mm. we've been talking um, about Tristan 
the great Schopenhauer opera, shall we call it. Mm. And we, we're going to play something from Tristan now, and we're trying to decide what. And we've decided on that extraordinary moment in Act Two, in the middle of the love duet, where who knows what those two are meant to be doing, Tristan and mm. Isolde, in the dark. And Brangene, who's uh, Isolde's handmaiden, is keeping watch. And she sings a warning from a tower. And that's what we're going to play, Jamie. Do you agree? And this mm, is... yes. Do listen to the extraordinary orchestration here and to the atmosphere that Wagner creates. Isn't that so? The solo violin, the, Absolutely the sort sublime. of shimmering orchestra. Mm.
isn't it the most magical moment in opera? That scene where Brangane is singing a warning to the lovers, Tristan and Isolde, um, warning them about approaching danger and just listening to that orchestration. And incidentally, that was the famous recording with Wilhelm Fortwängler, his famous um, Philharmonia London recording, and bringing out that texture so magnificently. Mm. And, Jamie, it just proves what a magic effect both Matilda and Schopenhauer had on Wagner to produce this remarkable mm-hmm. opera, Tristan and Isolde. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting irony, of course, in that um, uh, Schopenhauer himself um, has, being such a pessimist, uh, a, a very um, dim view of uh, erotic love as well. He, he, he sees this as a further manifestation of, of the will at its most destructive. And Wagner clearly agrees to, to an extent in portraying this great tale of uh, passionate, destructive love, but mm. he also infuses it with, with Schopenhauerian ideas that this kind of um, death wish that the lovers experience uh, is is a desire to escape from this world into uh, a kind of transcendental nothingness mm. in which they will be uh, truly as, as one. That is uh, the whole thrust, isn't it, of Tristan, that mm. um, a death wish. They, it was impossible to be in love to the extent they were in this particular That's right. World, it's it's a, a desire so great that it, it can never be satisfied by anything except total annihilation. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think the Liebestort at the end is so impressive because of the words that Isolde sings, implying that mm. this was now moving out of this... Mm-hmm. world and into yes. a, a transcendental world as yes. you said and and the the erotic uh, now becoming religious mm. in a way oh there you go because i was interested i mean wagner i would have thought would be annoyed with schopenhauer because wagner was so eroticism seemed to have meant a lot to him because mm-hmm. he did womanize quite a lot so it's interesting that he accepted that about Schopenhauer. It, it is interesting, and, and he, he continues uh, uh, to live an adventurous uh, erotic life uh, uh, until his last decade when he's working on Parsifal. Parsifal. <laughs> but this is the thing. So we had Tristan and Isolde. This is all the break in the ring. And mm. then Meistersinger, which is the really his comedy, the great comedy about mm. the German uh, culture and all that. And those are two di- very different operas. But do you believe that Schopenhauer is present in Meistersinger? Oh, very much well? so. Uh, but but in disguise, mm. in a way. Um, um, unlike uh, Tristan, which is wholly Schopenhauerian in conception, Wagner's first idea for an opera on the Meistersinger subject goes back to, to his earlier days when he's still working on Tannhäuser. Tannhäuser, yeah. And uh, he, he shelves that project for a long time and only comes back to it after Tristan. And at this stage, he embellishes his original story, keeping the, the comic surface. Uh, and and the strong autobiographical element, which is interesting. The Mm. story is very much uh, an ironic uh, summing up of his own career and his his struggle with the the musical and critical establishment. Um, Um, You know, we we mentioned Parsifal, and of course, he then finished Meistersinger, and he eventually finished The Ring. And then along came Parsifal, this curiously sort of, I want to say pseudo-religious, but is that being mm. a bit cynical? No, I think that's, that's fair, because like Schopenhauer, Wagner was not a, a conventionally religious man at all. And, yet he wanted yet, to write an opera on Jesus. Uh, which in a sense is uh, perhaps what Pars- Parsifal well, is. Well, yes, true.
And once again, we have a naive hero. The what was the phrase he uses? The wise fool, or something like that. Yes, the pure fool. Um, yes, and this opera is infused, isn't it, with a intensely spiritual world, whether it's Christian or not. Although it has to do with the cup of the Last Supper. But here also this opera breathes Schopenhauer, doesn't it? Yes, it is. It, it uses uh, Christian symbolism largely because of the, the subject matter, the, the medieval legends of, of the Grail. Um, but, but through this, um, the, the central themes are really concerned, again, with the renunciation of this world, a renunciation of desire, uh, the importance of, of compassion, uh, Mitzleit, the, the German word, um, mm. and uh, Schopenhauer's um, ethics are very much based on a concept of, of compassion, of recognizing another's suffering in order to heal it. And, and the, the opera very much dramatizes this through the, the pure hero's uh, encounter with the suffering Amfortas, the Grail King, uh, who is interestingly, as Wagner himself said, uh, a kind of version of Tristan as well. The same heroes keep cropping up in different guises in different operas mm -hmm. as uh, Parsifal is, is almost a reincarnation of, of Siegfried and those so those two uh, central operas are almost worked into this new one at the end of Wagner's career well now we're going to hear just a little excerpt from Parsifal it's quite a challenge isn't it Jamie to get mm. short excerpts from Wagner very much so this is leading chunks yes indeed <laughs> this is just a sort of excerpt from act one where Gurnemans the wise monk is talking about the background of um, the Grail. Oh. 
a sense of some of those themes and that shimmering music that Wagner used in Parsifal, giving it an aura of spirituality there. Gurnemann's there talking about the background of of the opera, really, and that was sung by Kurt Moll with the Metropolitan Orchestra conducted by James Levine. We're running out of time, Dr. Jamie McGregor, who's lecturer in literary studies in English, talking about a composer's midlife crisis, Wagner before and after Schopenhauer. And I think you've given us a lot of food for thought about Schopenhauer and certainly the effect it had on Wagner. This obsession Wagner had with women and redemption through a woman like um, Isolde, like uh, famously Brunhilde, um, unlike anything in Parsifal, is that Schopenhauer-ish by any chance? Uh, it isn't, it isn't, as, as we already saw, um, as the case in, in Tristan, that um, uh, Wagner identifies um, the, the love of, of woman uh, before Freud, interestingly, with a, a kind of death instinct. Um, and he, he manages to, to graft this uh, into a Schopenhauerian view of the world because um, it is in death that, that one is, is liberated from the, the illusory world. Mm -hmm. And, and um, again, Wagner uh, shifts the meaning of the ring, for example, not through politics as, as he originally intended, uh, but through... Um, a, a more metaphysical conception and and this is articulated uh, in the music far more than than the words mm. so that uh, the the sacrifice of of Brynhilde at, at the the end of of the ring um he he does here change uh, the wording somewhat from from his uh, original text but it it is um in the the scoring that the one one feels this sense of a a release 
through a, a woman's sacrifice from the uh, very much male-dominated world of politics that we've seen in, mm -hmm. in the, the earlier operas, the obsession with the ring itself as, as the symbol of power. Uh, and the the, the shift um, to not to a, a new socialist utopia as in the original Feuerbachian um, conception, but um, in again a, a Tristan-like um, escape uh, yes. from from the world altogether mm -hmm. through the sacrifice of Brunhilde. Yes, the one of these great <laughs> characters, isn't she? Really, so yeah. powerful, really tremendous. Um, we have to stop. But just if anyone is keen to find out more, this book that we've been talking about by Brian mm -hmm. McGee, I think mm -hmm. you can find it on Amazon or wherever, mm -hmm. and it's called Wagner and Philosophy. And you would say, wouldn't you, Jamie, that it's very well worth reading it, it if you really want to is. see more. Yes. And it yes. enhances your love mm -hmm. of Wagner's music as well. Very much so. Uh, McGee's a wonderful uh, authority. Um, uh, now, sadly, the, the late Brian McGee, after a long and distinguished career as a, a popularizer mm -hmm. of, of philosophy and philosophers and a great authority on on Schopenhauer and his relationship with with the composer I would endorse it very warmly well we hope that we whet your appetite not only for Wagner but also for Wagner's interest in philosophy and the effect Schopenhauer had on him and we're going to end with the closing of Goethe Dummerung the mighty ring cycle where the redemption theme, which we've only heard once before in Act Two of Valkyrie, comes back on the orchestra, and almost like a benediction, isn't it? Brings this yes. work to a close on a beautiful key, a beautiful chord. Mm -hmm. I was talking to Dr. Jamie McGregor, lecturer in literary studies in English, and we've been talking about a composer's midlife crisis, Wagner before and after Schopenhauer. And as we listen to the end of Goethe, Raman, Jamie, thank you very much for your time and thanks for, being for having so me, Rodney. It's been a great pleasure.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turing Productions. FMR 101.